For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a comedian comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Hannah Gatsby. Starting comedy in 2006, Hannah came up in the Australian system of putting together a new hour set every year. Each would be called quirky things like Kiss Me Quick, I'm Full of Jubes, or Happiness is a Bedside Table. But it's fitting that a decade later, she went with a proper noun, because Nanette took on a life of its own, starting off by winning the top prizes at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2017, to its release on Netflix in 2018, which garnered it an Emmy and a Peabody, all while becoming the most discussed special in the States since, I'd say, Chris Rock's 1996 breakthrough, Bring the Pain. Internationally, it was probably the biggest special ever. But to Hannah, who has for years pushed back on the idea of genius, thinking of it not as a person, but an event, a a culmination of zeitgeist, that was all Nanette. Nanette was the one who pushed back on the idea of jokes specifically, and how they failed to tell the totality of the story, which leaves the audience off the hook in confronting the reality of the teller's trauma. In that, Nanette probably made a strongest case against self-deprecation, saying, To be self-deprecating when you're already someone who lives in the margins is not humility, it's humiliation. By deliberately foregoing laughs to make audiences sit with stories of sexual assault and abuse, Nanette questioned comedy. In turn, much of comedy debated if Nanette even counted as stand-up. As Hannah acknowledges, though she created Nanette in relative obscurity, though she was quite well-known in Australia, Nanette was toured and released during the height of the first push of the Me Too movement, at a time when audiences were most ready to receive it, be it positively or negatively. Comedy is often a matter of timing. But then what does Hannah do next? It's a question that's even harder to answer when you consider the sort of special Nanette was, a special where she not only said she was going to quit comedy, but also one where she spent the majority of it confronting comedy, questioning its ability to capture all she wanted to say and all she needed to say. So meet Douglas. Named after one of her dogs, it recently came out on Netflix. In it, Hannah mostly tried to be, I hope you're sitting down, really funny. It has like a ton of jokes. And more. For example, there is some structural inventiveness, including that she starts the show laying out exactly everything she's going to talk about during the hour. It's hard to say the special's about one thing, but as Hannah and I discuss, it's largely about showing you how she thinks the way she does, and then trying to explain why, as she tells the story of her autism diagnosis. As she puts it, it's meant to be a romantic comedy. The clip from Douglas we're going to play is a story Hannah tells about what it was like growing up with autism before she knew she was on the spectrum as Hannah wasn't diagnosed until later in life, not coincidentally enough, right before she started working on Nanette. So, here is Hannah Gatsby. I have what's called high-functioning autism, which is a terrible name for what I have. 
because it gives the impression that I function highly. <laughs> I do not. To give you an idea of what it feels like to be on the spectrum, basically it feels like being the only sober person in a room full of drunks or the other way around. Basically, everyone is operating on a wavelength you can't quite key into. I remember going from being the teacher's pet to being the teacher's nemesis in one lesson. And until I was diagnosed, I never understood what had happened. Now, the lesson was on prepositions, so strap yourselves in for this story. Now, I do like my teacher. She's a good teacher. I like the way she explained things, but we lost each other this way. This is how she began the lesson. She said, imagine a box. And I could do that. I was gifted to a point. Visual thinker, good box, solid, three-dimensional, nothing fancy, but there. And then she said, a preposition is a word that explains your relationship to the box. And that's when my thinking just fell apart because I thought, I'm related to a box? <laughs> then she said, now, you can be behind the box. Does anybody know what the preposition is there? No, they didn't, but I had a question. <laughs> I said, am I made of box? Now, let me bring you into my thinking there. I thought if I was related to a box, we must share DNA. And it made more sense in my head that I would be made of box than the box would be made of me. <laughs> but my teacher was not privy to that gifted train of thought circling my head there. So she was a bit thrown and she said, no, Hannah, you're not made of box. I'm surprised you had to ask that. <laughs> I said, okay, you can be in front of the box then. Does anybody know what the preposition is there? No, they didn't, but I had another question. <laughs> I said, does the box have a name? I thought if I had a name, I could work out how we were related. Maybe we were cousins. And she said, no, it's a box. Boxes don't have names, Hannah. What boxes do you know have names? And I started listing breakfast cereals. <laughs> like, all right, okay. You can be beside the box. Does anybody know what the preposition is there? No, they didn't, but I had another question. Now, I don't remember my thinking behind this question, but I remember asking it because when I did, everybody laughed and I had no idea why. But I remembered really liking the feeling. Uh-oh. <laughs> this was the question. I said, am I allowed to eat the box? Of course, yes, everybody is laughing except me and the teacher looking back. I don't know why the fuck she wasn't laughing. As far as jokes go, that's a classic. A baby died, just asked if she was allowed to eat the box. She didn't think it was funny. She's like, okay, all right, okay. Calm down. Okay, we might be on the wrong track. How about we imagine something else in relation to the box then? Okay, how about a penguin? Now, the penguin can be inside the box. Does anybody know what the preposition is there? No, they didn't, but I had some fucking questions about the penguin. I said, what is the penguin made of? And that was the question that broke my teacher. You know you've broken a teacher when a teacher who never swears, swears bad. So I said, what's the penguin made of? And she's like, the penguin? I mean... It's made of fucking penguin. <laughs> and as far as answers go, that's mwah. Like, that is watertight. That is a stunning answer. You can't logic out of that answer. That is a good answer. 
But it was at that point I thought, oh, I might be on the wrong track. But I had other questions pressing, but I thought, now doesn't seem the time. She seems upset. <laughs> so what I thought is, like, I might hang on to my question. That's what I thought. And that was my mistake. I should have either asked my question then while we're in the thick of it, or not at all. Because I did the worst possible thing. I waited until she felt safe. <laughs> then I asked my question. But I waited so long, it wasn't even the same lesson. It was much later in the day, in silent reading. <laughs> I waited so long, it wasn't even a question anymore. It was more of a theory, and that made it worse. I said, what if the penguin ate the box? And then you say the penguin's a little bit made of box. Get out. And that was the first, but not the last time I was sent out for reasons I had no idea why. Because the thing is, I was genuinely engaged in that lesson. Like, I, really was, I really wanted to know what a preposition was. It wasn't like I was sitting there going, prepositions? I've never fucking heard of them! But as she explained to me later, she said, you're being deliberately obtuse. I'm like, but I'm not a triangle. <laughs> I did not learn what a preposition was that day. Look, I understand what they are now. I'm all over it. And I also understand if the penguin ate the box, the penguin would be around the box. <laughs> I am here with Hannah Gatsby. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. You're not really here, though, are you? I am here in the ears of the prospective listener. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so um, before we talk about your latest special, Douglas, and, and the joke that we're going to be talking about, I, I wanted to provide a little background and context. Um, you have said you were diagnosed with autism a few years ago. And, you know, even before Nanette, however, in Australia, you were known for being able to be very personal on stage. You've talked about certain struggles with mental illness before. What was your thought process after you were diagnosed about whether to talk about it on stage? And as you obviously did not include it uh, explicitly in Nanette, decide not to talk about it right away? Um, well, I decided not to talk about it because I had talked about other, you know, episodes in my life where I'd struggled with depression, anxiety, and other bits and bobs, we'll call it. And um, <laughs> and I found that, the, you know, people very feel very free to offer medical advice, you know, like busking with, with <laughs> psych psychology busking. And what I worked out through trial and error is that's actually really dangerous if you're feeling vulnerable. Um, so, you know, for, for one show, for example, I talked about uh, how I uh, decided to stop taking antidepressants and I didn't decide to stop taking them because I don't believe in them. I just sort of, you know, <laughs> forgot to take them when I was traveling overseas mm -hmm. and thought, gosh, maybe now's the time. Um, it's a great way to, you know, come off meds is when you're away from your support network and, 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 and your doctors. Uh, so, uh, so I sort of talk, talk about it, uh, talked about it and around it. And then people would say, it's the right decision. Drugs are bad. And, um, and what I found is through performing that show that, that while I was good when I wrote it, I increasingly mm -hmm. became bad, but 
I kept hearing drugs are bad and I thought I don't need to go back on them. And it's those little voices, particularly with medication and mental illness and the stigma around that, people uh, get inside your head and when you're not well, you don't have the tools of discretion and, uh, you know, self-care. So, you know, I delayed getting the medical help I needed to, and it was a, quite a dangerous place. And as far as, you know, um, uh, autism is concerned, it's, it's not mental illness. It's a neuro, neurobiological situation. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are comorbid situations because of the anxiety and, and, and stuff that goes around that, um, which was where my previous sort of struggles were were stemming from and I didn't understand that. So the diagnosis was a really great moment for me because it's like, I don't have to understand why, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I mean, everything's wrong with everyone, but um, (laughs) a lot of, a lot of my anxieties and and issues, I found I was better able to, you know, control or manage through environmental, uh, um, sort of what do you call it adjustments so and mm-hmm. and then I stopped feeling you know the guilt about being I'll call it antisocial but it's 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 not really antisocial I'm very social in theory um <laughs> you know so sort of, so those sorts of you know I started managing my environment better through you know understanding the neurobiological bent to it but also, I don't understand autism. Nobody really understands autism. I had to work out, you know, where do I begin in the, uh, you know, and where does autism end? And, you know, ultimately the answer to that is there's no such line. It's the flavour. It's how you process the world. But when I first was diagnosed, I didn't understand that. And, you know, I had to I had to live with it and understand it. So it would have been dangerous for both me and the world if I'd have gone out and go, Here's autism. This is what I know. Mm. Um, so I made it. That's that's a lot. That's pretty yeah. much in a very large nutshell. You have said um, that at the time that that answer of the autism diagnosis freed you up to, at least for a time, not to look as much as the problem was inward and much more focus on the problems outward. That said, on, on I think, Kona's podcast, you described Nanette as a show about how a person with autism thinks. And I, I mean... Obviously, you can say that hypothetically about anything you've done, but what do you mean in terms of Nanette? In in what ways do you think that special exhibits an autistic line of thinking or way of perceiving? Well, it's, it's specific to me. I wouldn't like to imagine. Sure. <laughs> but um, it's the connecting the macro with the micro is one way. You know, I, I my personal didn't match up until I understood the external, but I always ran under the assumption that the world made sense and I was wrong and I didn't make, I didn't make sense and I had to work out how to make sense in order to fit into the world. Um, it was not long after <laughs> diagnosis that, you know, I started to trust my, you know, you know, if something doesn't make sense to me, it's almost painful. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, you know, take sort of like, you know, the love of misogyny. <laughs> like we, we just need to sort of name it. And so that's that was pretty much what I, I meant by that. It's like I looked at the world not trusting it as much as I, I had mm-hmm. before. 
Um, and it's sort of a combination of, of the two. It's like I don't understand myself and I don't understand the world and I never will. And while that's both <laughs> a, a horribly frustrating idea to a brain like mine, it also has like a, a peace valve because it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it feels good to try and make sense of things. That's how I, I operate. That's how I feel calm. But knowing that I can never do it is a good is a good thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you wrote you wrote Nanette in, at least at the beginning. You wrote in one context. You're you're uh, a well known. You were well known in Australia and in the UK. So the audiences you're performing for at first had a certain frame of reference for you and your work. Mm-hmm. And also, the, this was a show done f- at first for the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which has its own sort of context in which people are expected to do these sort of shows that are sort of thematically connected. And then it comes out in Netflix, um, as we Americans tend to do, we sort of defined this thing against ourselves and it became judged in relationship to American comedy. What did you learn about Americans understanding and thinking about comedy from that moment, from it being received by us? Um, that you're, like all world leaders in any time in history, incredibly arrogant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, it's just that I, but I just think that's human. It's not American. That's just sort of like you don't have to think about the rest of the world because you are, as far as you're concerned, the rest of the world. You think comedy began in America, and you drive how it is, uh, and to a certain extent, you do flavor comedy because you, you know you flavor all most you know Western culture, but it does have to go be processed by the you know. The other places so you know i'm i'm well aware of american culture and that gives me kind of an edge because you're not at all clued in to the the specifics of mine um and so that just gives i think it's interesting i i think i think american comedy could do with a bit of a shake-up um you know but that's because i think any creative you know, standard should be given a shake up. Um, mm-hmm. I was surprised at the hostility though, because it's comedy and how seriously people take it is just incredible. It's just like everything is funny except comedy. It's like, come on, guys, <laughs> get over yourselves. It made me think of something, uh, a quote from an American comedian, Moshe Kasher, that um, he said that stand-ups, stand-up comedians, at least in America, are so insecure that what they do can even be considered an art form that they push back against anyone who asserts to do it differently. I think as a as a person, you know, famously with an art history background, uh, what do you think about this idea that part of it is that it, it's coming from a certain insecurity that you're questioning sort of what a lot of American comedians were holding true is like, well, if this is the standard and if I'm doing what the standard is, that means I'm doing something that is legitimate. And you sort of put a sort of a question mark over all of that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm always kind of amused by people who, you know, sort of think comedy's different to any other, <laughs> uh, any, anything else. And, um, and it, yeah, I mean, part of what I, why, you know, I wrote Nanette was that was that connection I saw between sort of early modern art and, um, you know, comedy as I saw it and experienced it. 
And that is that sort of like they broke everything in modern art. They're like ev- all the rules are out except mm-hmm. the sort of painting naked women. Like they broke everything except the the creepy part. And mm-hmm. and so with, with stand-up there's a, that same thing. It's like freedom of speech. We can say anything. We are the last line of of you know, free speech. And, and I'm like, why are you wasting that free speech on dick jokes, you stupid mm-hmm. idiot? Uh, so, like, <laughs> and, and you know, there's this mistake. There's this, like, I think it's a mistake where people think, you know, someone questioning your politics is the same as, uh, you know, total, you know, authoritarianism. It's like, I say a thing, I think you're wrong. You're silencing me. No, it's it's a conversation. But I think there's a danger in stand-up comedy because it is so one way that that's perhaps a habit of communication with stand-ups. Yeah. They're like, they talk at people. That's what we do. We talk at people. And so social media has opened up this conversation that, you know, we're not trained to have. Um, you know, so that, that one way aspect of it is, I think, unsettling. How did learning this affect how you approached or even just how you felt about the idea that, you know, this was going with your next show, this is going to be your first time to really sort of tour the States. It's been fun. Your American audiences are really lovely. Um, uh, You know, and my audiences are not necessarily stand up comedy audiences. So I'd like, you know, if there are any sort of comics listening to this who are, who are angry at me because I might have stolen a slice of their audience pie. No, people who like what I do hate you. So um, <laughs> they never went to comedy because it was, you know, it, you know, some a lot of women don't like feeling unsafe in a crowd. It's just a thing. Um, so I think, you know, I've clearly just found my audience and uh, they're lovely and, um and I had a really nice time. And I paid out on Americans. Like, I didn't exactly hold back on on, on y'all. But uh, it's not because I don't like you. I think you're, you're really nice. Oh, thank you. For all Americans, I say thank you. Yeah, you're coming from a uh, good place. Um, so l- let's talk about Douglas. So in Melbourne, l- like Edinburgh, you're, you're coming out of a, a system where you are expected to do a new thematically connected hour every year. And You've also said that though the idea of quitting comedy meant different things at different times while working on a net, at least at, at minimum, it often meant just sort of dislodging yourself from the sort of the pace and pressure of that hour of a year system. This is this is all to say when coming up with an entire show, you know, like this, unlike in the States where you just sort of start touring and you build incrementally, but where you're actually sort of like thinking of the show first. So for Douglas, what does that thinking look like? How much are you figuring out just sort of in the conception stage? What are you sort of determining before you even start performing it? Um, it just made me chuckle because it was just like, that's an art form, guys. See, I haven't broken it. Um, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, look, I, I always think it's important to frame a show about what you're thinking about because, you know, uh, if you if you frame it about what you think other people are thinking about, for someone like me, that's that's a fool's errand because I don't think about things in the same way 
as other people. Um, that's the nature of neurodiversity. But um, so I pick, you know, the things that are big in my life and then flesh it out around that. I, I think a lot about structure. I have a very visual brain and, I, you know, with Nanette I used the, the framework of callback as a device and then I subverted it. So a callback is, you know, of course, when you, you have a little pepper, a little joke up the top and then later on when you keep referring to it, it gets funnier and funnier. And out of context, it's not necessarily funny. It's just building that um, language with an audience. Um, mm-hmm. But with Nanette, I, I did that, but instead of making the callback funnier, I made it, you know, devastating, and that was the device I used. In Douglas, I decided to experiment with the call forward, so yes. um, which is dumb, but I thought, oh, well, I'm in this silly position now where I suddenly have a huge audience I didn't intend on or think I'd have, so let's play. Um, and so I, at the beginning of the show, I just, you know, I, I you know, pepper things that aren't funny when I say them, but then it's like it becomes repetition of language. And um, I used the basic structure of a fugue. <laughs> um, so it has the prelude and then, you know, I have several ideas that, you know, it's clearly not musical because it's spoken, mm-hmm. but, you know, I use sort of the way I frame an idea so I use story and then I just use rants and then the story and then I connect them all. And so, you know, that was really fun to play with. And so as the material built, I sort of like had the framework in which to, to hang it. And it was, it was a really, really fun way to do a show for me because usually, you know, the pressure of a, a, a festival is, is kind of difficult because I get very overwhelmed by my environments. And while traveling is very overwhelming, you know, a festival environment is a real killer um, as, mm. as much as I like the theory of them. Um, so being able to just, it was a real privilege to be able to work on a show like this and tour it to, you know, audiences who are clearly wanting to be there. And that's a, that's a thing I don't think many successful comedian comedians talk about is how much easier it gets. Like comedy is so easy when people are into you. Well, I think there's, there's certain comedians who, dislike that about it i think there's a certain i mean a, a type of comedian that especially at least here that's like oh when audiences like to do much it's too easy you want to have to like convince them of a joke because then you know it's sort of bulletproof or whatever they would say yeah i don't know i've struggled for so long i'm, I'm enjoying it yeah you know that's fair. <laughs> like i go through life with you know, a lot of my early life was like going into an open mic room i don't need to recreate that on stage I just want to go back and add on that, um, the easiness of the audience. Um, I I think it's really important to acknowledge that the audience are part of the show. Like mm-hmm. a show only works because of the audience and a, a joke isn't bulletproof on the page. Like it does, jokes don't exist on the page, like in stand-up comedy. You have to perform them and you don't perform them to a vacuum and I really don't think I really don't think it's it's a smart way to go about it going, you know, because you get to see so many comedians get really angry at audiences who don't laugh at their jokes and it's like, that's funny. It's like, yeah, not today. Yeah. Uh, and the way I've always worked is that, you know, and the way that Douglas evolved 
you know, as I toured, it was this stuff that worked in the beginning began to not work. And that was as much about the way I delivered it as also, you know, the context that it was placed in and, and the audiences that sort of received it. And, and, you know, while I don't necessarily listen to direct feedback and take it on board and, <laughs> you know, a literal level, I really do take the audience feedback. So if jokes begin to not work, you know, in a, you know, that's, you know, that's the, that's how you understand not yeah. if, a, if a joke is bulletproof. That That's a very club comedy idea. And that's fine. Club comedy exists and it's a good thing. But I don't, I don't, like there's very little of my shows that I can take out and do in a club. And that's, mm. you know, that's not because I can't do that. I just don't like doing it. I hate short form comedy. For me personally, I don't mind other people doing it. Get on with it. Go for it. Cool story. But... Um, if you think about it, you know, if you use a, use like a, an athletic comparison, you know, there's sprints, there's longer runs and, the, and there's marathons. And I I really enjoy, you wouldn't know looking at me, but I, I enjoy a marathon. Is is it because you can create the context in which the comedy is existing opposed to the, the club, which the club is the context? Yeah. And that's nothing to do, like, that's not to say clubs are wrong. It's just like my particular... Uh, brands of autism means that they're actually really incredibly difficult places yeah. for me to be in. You, you mentioned a little bit uh, about your relationship with the audience. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. In the TED Talk you did last year, you explained that there's this sort of contradiction of how you're able to be so good at something you're so bad at, which is talking to people. You say that typically it's hard for you to think, listen, speak, and process new information at the same time. But you can do it in comedy because you don't have to think. You prepare everything you say well in advance. You don't have to listen. That's what the audience does. You're not really talking, you're reciting. So all you all is left is connection. So, but while working on material, which, you know, is a thing comedians doing constantly, how do you relate to the audience where, as you said, your the feedback is essential to sort of understanding what the show is? I, I'm incredibly sensitive to my environment. And I think that translates into literally reading a room. And while on interpersonal conversations it's I'm not very good at reading a room um but in a in a large audience like I really get a sense of what is working and and what is not and that that's that's what it is like if you could if you think about it in in terms of say a microphone it's it's not because I I don't it's not you know in a like a, a conversation it's like when I miss cues and things like that it's not because my microphone itself is not picking things up. It's set to such a sensitive frequency. Mm -hmm. So it's picking up everything, everything. And I, particularly with sound, I, and, and just, you know, vibe, like I, I know when something's wrong, but all the input I'm struggling to, to sort out and, and prioritize. So, mm -hmm. you know, just with sound, if there's a dog barking in the distance, it, to my brain, it's, it's given the same importance as the person I'm, I'm talking to. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, I, I can manage it. You know, I'm not, I'm not a monster. I go, you know, <laughs> pouring their heart out to me. I don't sit there and go, the dog's barking. You know, I get it. <laughs> but uh, it's actually a really difficult thing. But in a large room, you know, when there's this massive, you know, humanity sitting there and responding to it, it's a very... It is a really, it's 
it's been a real source of connection for me in the in my life because I have been incredibly isolated because of the the said dog barking situation, mm-hmm. um, and that I think has you know given me a, a that's part of why I'm good at what I do. So what when you know when we say writing for comedians, it always means something different. When you're writing your material. What does that mean? Are is it literally a thing that you're typing? Is it a thing you're writing handout? Or is it sort of an outline? Sort of how are you sort of developing the sort of actual material that we call the material? Um, it stretches out over time. I use various. Depends on what part of the process I'm at. Um, you know, in the beginning, before I've gone on, I'm, I'm working on the overall um, shape and idea of the show more than the actual specifics I I work you know there's that famous idea of you know I'm not I'm not comparing myself to Michelangelo I'm comparing myself to his process but he has a you know he gets a slab of marble and then he has to work from that whereas you know maybe the other process is if you're working up through the clubs and doing 15 minute sets and that's more say a Rodin way of working where he's shaping Mm -hmm. you know out from from um so i'm uh, i i chip away at it and that that means i employ different tools at different times um so sometimes i'll I'll sit and try and craft a turn of phrase you know on on, with pen and paper other times you know i really i really find the the toppers on stage you know a joke will be working and then once i'm comfortable with a joke my mind then just because it's always the way it works is it's always reaching out, trying to find connections, and that's where I get my, you know, the real, the real delightful tags at the end of my jokes. Or mm-hmm. they're never written; they're always found on on stage. Did you go into it knowing, big picture, these are the things you wanted? Hit like, obviously, the autism is part of it. Is not only about it, but obviously. Um, you don't just only talk about autism that actually makes up a very small part of the show, but that is sort of a framing device of what you're trying to have the audience take from it. Is that also something that is developing over time or is, or is that something you're like big picture? This is, I know it, I want it to look like this structurally. I know it wants to have this and I want this sort of to be the takeaway. What I was, there's two main ideas in it. And it's like, I had to deal with an Annette issue and I had mm-hmm. to, you know, I wanted to share autism and, and the autism thing is tricky because it's so people don't know much about it. You know, they think they know what it is and it's there's a lot of bad myths out there. But also I didn't want to get up on stage and teach autism. I wanted the show to yeah. be autism. And there's, I think people who have autism will get a lot more out of the show and understand that in ways. And I think it's just a step in, you know, I, I don't think this is the end of, how the change of how most people understand autism you know it's going to take a long time but I think and that was a really difficult thing to do because you know you know how do you do autism without teaching it I mean you know like it's it's a really difficult juggle and the show got sillier and sillier as it progressed so it did start off where I was teaching autism and it was a bit heavy-handed in places and that was fine it was part of the process and then I got to the point where I felt like I you know like the preposition thing, it was just like that's 
that's about as close to teaching autism as I've got. But the rest of it was, you know, this is the way I think. And it's yeah. not that different to the way other people think. It's just the intensity is <laughs> different. Um, and the Nanette thing was, you know, I sat down writing this and now, well, people are always going to just see me through the lens of Nanette and that's just the way it's going to be. So I set up camp in the shadow of Nanette and thought, let's make this nice. Mm-hmm. Um and also different. I, 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 wanted to, I wanted people to understand that the trauma doesn't have to define you mm-hmm. um, and there is life after trauma, there is fun after trauma. You know, like life does yeah. go on and you have to exist in the life that goes on. Trauma just keeps pulling you back. Um, but that's not the only thing I have to talk about. And so that was, that was uh, kind of a thing I wanted to Sure. Achieve. We will be right back with more Hannah Gatsby. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And we're back with Hannah Gatsby. So uh, let's let's dive deeper into uh, the Penguin story. <laughs> as, 
Uh, what is your history with this memory? You know, where did it live before your autism diagnosis? And then sort of how did it change after? And then how did you eventually think, oh, we should maybe talk about it on stage? Uh, look, that was before the diagnosis, that memory lived in kind of a really shameful place. Um, because it's a sort of memory that doesn't just exist in my childhood. These, this kind of missing the point is something I do every day. Um, and I've frustrated people in my life, my whole life, because I can be so intelligent and so dumb. And people think that I'm taking the piss out of them. Um, and so I used to hide my hide my stupidity and that, that meant that I just didn't talk a lot. And but since being diagnosed, I began to just embrace my... I have a strange personality for people to, to comprehend because I can be really cerebral and intellectual and philosophical and then also an absolute child. And that is, that is, a, that is an autism thing. And it's really frustrating for people. And people think that you have a, like a dual personality or that you're manipulating and you know to a certain extent and what it is is like it's like no i i don't know what's important (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and i i since being diagnosed i've learned to really enjoy that part of my personality and and add a playfulness that's taken the shame out of it and so there's that's a really fun story but it's not one i gave any thought to because it it was shameful and also it keeps happening. Like that's not that's not something that stopped when I was seven. That happened, yeah. you know, yesterday. The bit starts with the joke, I have high functioning autism, which is a terrible which is a terrible name for what I have because it gives the impression that I function highly. Mm. I, I do not. Uh, of the many things the net is about, one is sort of the rejection of self deprecation by the marginalized uh, or, you know, the, by those people who lack power. This, is, this joke is obviously different, but broadly it could be defined as self-deprecation and just sort of pure form of what is the, the joke. How did your thinking about it evolve in terms of, like, how to use sort yeah. of the structure of self-deprecating differently and and as you are posting it? My understanding of that joke is not that it's self-deprecating. I'm saying that, you know the amount of work I have to do to exist in this world, uh, you know, my high functioning is betrays that fact. It just says you can manage. I'm like, that's all I can do. And that's less about me and more about how the world stru- is structured and how we expect people to exist in the world. You know, like the world is rigged um, against, you know, people who struggle with, basic administration you know like the world was impossible for me before um stand-up comedy because i didn't i I didn't know how to get a job i didn't know how to hold down a job i didn't know how I, i really struggled filling in basic forms but i know how to do it and if i sit down and focus i can fill in a form but that's then my whole day and so you get to a point where all you're doing is the basic administration of life and you're losing. Um, so I don't, I don't think that that's self-deprecation. That's like going, you know, high-functioning 
just means that I don't get to live my best life because God. you know the world the world expects too much from individuals. <laughs> it's more a joke on the. You're right. It's more a joke about the. Yeah, look, uh, honestly, if, the I words. Was, if I was a man born in the 1950s, a middle-class man born in, I wouldn't have autism. I'd have a secretary, a wife, a mother, and I'd play mm-hmm. golf and drink whiskey. I'd be fine. Like, they didn't do anything to keep themselves in the world. They didn't, everything was done for them, and that's what I actually need. <laughs> Basically, Don Draper. Yeah. Um, you then go on to compare autism to feeling like being the only sober person in a room full of drunks or the other way around. How did you come up with that analogy? What do you like about it? I, I, at one stage, I went further with that because being undiagnosed means you're like the only sober person in a room full of drunks and you don't understand that everyone is drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's been a really <laughs> big part of my life because that's when you start, you know, that's when you're performing. So you're watching how other people act. And then you go, this is how other people act. And so you do it and it's always wrong because you're watching. And so the way you behave is not driven by how you feel. It's like, this is what people do in the world. And that's part of the reason I'm funny because people are like, you're doing it slightly wrong and it's either adorable or annoying or, you know, in equal parts. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the way I go. Yeah. The story, the story part follows a certain rhythm, which is your teacher tries to create a scenario with the box. No one has an answer. You then have an unexpected question in that moment, and then you, in the pre- sort of in your present day self, analyze your thinking and her reaction. You know, before Nanette, uh, your work was very story heavy. When you have a story like this, how do you think about pacing it and structuring it? How do you think about the laughs and the points you're getting trying to get across? Um, you know, a story has its own sort of dynamic and it's, it's you know, it's always sort of you've got to pull people forward um, so they think they know what they're expecting and then there's got to be, you know, twists. And, there's, you know, that one's got lovely rhythm because there's repetition. I love repetition. Um, and I think also the one thing I love about that story is, is everyone kind of, it's not, that's not just autism, that's just learning about the world and, you know, because I can frame it as a child. There was, you know, like there were stories I could have chosen where this happened in adulthood. And what I found is people didn't trust that as much because I still think that people don't really believe me when I could, when I say I'm being, I don't understand. And it can be unnerving for audiences. So you know, the stories I tried uh, with that one, you know, as an adult, people are like, ah, this is not real. So I think, I, you know, I had to choose one from my childhood in order to make it palatable. Um, you know, because it, people, people look at my work and see me, see me exist and go, you're not that stupid, stop pretending. But, you know. In Nanette, you know, you, you, you focus part of the show on how you used to tell stories and how you'd remove the tough bits, which beyond being sort of revelatory, to your own personal experience, underlined how the stories comedians tell on stage as true are often not the whole truth. Uh, it's the part that when you tell in a secrets that the parts that when you tell in a sequence are funny. Is this the story as it happened? Is it the parts that work on stage? I mean, like, what is your relationship to the truth of stories, especially as you so famously um, 
I wouldn't say took it to task, but analyzed how you've had approached stories in the past. Well, the, the subject matter, of the, you know, the Nanette was that, you know, the stories women could tell themselves and, you know, each other were different to what the world accepted. And that was that, it was that sort of disconnect between stage stories and the, and the reality and that, that causes pain. And that's where trauma exists because, you know, your community refuses to listen to the reality that you just know is there. So that's, you know, that's the part of the story that's, that's damaging. You know, people, you know, victims of trauma can't escape their trauma because their community refuses to listen or can't, doesn't have the framework to understand the story. So that's what, that's what that exists in. Whereas this, this story is not particularly traumatic. It's, it's more sort of, in that sense, it's more sort of, you know, a, a connecting story. This is more, more of a universal story. So, it, it, you know, the flourishes, of course, are not, you know, it's not as it happened, but it is as it, as it felt. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it, this story, I understand it can exist in a framework that already exists in the world. Whereas Nanette, you know, I wrote Nanette pre-Me Too. In in a post-Me Too world, it it, it almost seems redundant. (laughs) But, you know, it was part of that moment um, where it's just like, you know, the world is gaslighting victims of sexual trauma. As as you said, the, the, the point of the story, opposed to... was was The point of the story was to have it be a universal-seeming story it seems, but to show how it was a little bit different, opposed to trying to show a more unique scenario that was more personal. Your your goal was to find something people can't connect to in a way that they can't connect to it, and as a way of showing on the margins of how this is what it was like if you were then me. Yeah, look, because people think, people want, I still think people want autism to be a freak show, and yeah. that's what was driving that story. It's just like it's not a freak show. It's it can be a freaky experience, but you know I think because we communicate wrong, so to speak, like to to just boil it down to the crudest possible point, we communicate wrong. So therefore, what we're trying to communicate is wrong. And I I'm driven to try and challenge that. And it's like no, how you communicate is important but what you're communicating is also incredibly important. And I think, you know, I think if you refuse to adjust the way you communicate, you're in trouble, but also if people prioritise, you know, policing communication of like, I'm not listening to you because you said it wrong, I think that's a really dangerous place also. You know, like people who correct grammar or mock people because they don't spell a word right on, on, on social media, I just really think, they're poisonous attitudes. It's just like you're calling someone dumb because, you know, maybe they didn't have the education you did or maybe they don't, aren't able to process the written word like you can. But what they're communicating, like if you don't, if you refuse to listen to someone because, you know, they use the wrong there, you're an asshole. I come from a part of the world, you know, it's over well over 50% of the people are illiterate um, and that is just an investment in education it is not a reflection mm-hmm. of intelligence you know and 
And that's a cycle. Poverty um, and, you know, intergenerational trauma and all these things feed into that. And if you can't get over yourself and your, you know, grammar <laughs> focus, you're dumb. <laughs> you know, like it, it, you know, I know I get my tone wrong all the time and I am constantly working on that. But and that's part of the autism experience. Um but I see neurotypical people just just being so tone deaf all the time. But because they you know, neurotypical people have got have set the tone, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um and I would like to see more of a you know, push and pull on that. The, the sort of peak of the, the joke, at least comedically, is uh, when you ask your teacher, am I allowed to eat the box? <laughs> uh, which is, you know, a bit of a cheeky joke. Um, that section, which is also part the, uh, you getting laughter and not knowing why, but you like it, and also the teacher not getting it. How did that section evolve, which is sort of like the, the comedic culmination of that? Well, that? I mean, that's honestly how I got into comedy. Like, I always knew I was funny. I never understood why. And often I'm People laugh at what I say and I have to understand it retroactively because uh, I'm, I'm putting other pieces of a, a puzzle together and during that process I say something. I'm trying to understand something and sometimes I don't understand it in such a profoundly stupid way that it's funny. And then yeah. other times I put something together and I understand it in a really profoundly different way that helps people see the world differently and those two things coexist. And um, that story is about, you know, I felt stupid in the moment, but now as an adult, I, you know, because I never understood it, I kept striving to understand it. And now I can look back and I have ideas as to what goes into that. And one of the, one of the ideas is like, you know, people who think they have the answer don't like getting asked the wrong question. You know, and that's, that's not autism, that's the world. And that's about perspective. It reminds me of this sort of later in the joke, um, you say you were trying to, you're contrasting with an earlier person, right? You, you say you were trying to learn. You didn't say propositions. I've never fucking heard of them, which was contrasting sort of seemingly neurotypical straight white men who refuse to learn, even though they're capable of it. You know, it's when you're thinking of callbacks that are, do you think like, can I use callbacks that are heightened opposed to like, let me just get more laughs in a moment when he laughs. How do you approach and we're like, oh, let me make sure I'm also sort of connecting it. That's a really important callback because I'm saying like I understand that frustration as well. Like, you know, I, you know, I, of, like I've never heard of something, you know, like I'm, I'm in a way like I'm mocking but I'm also connecting. It's like I understand, you know, the frustration of of not understanding but mm-hmm. I don't get to have that sort of anger I don't get to have that you know uh, luxury of being able to yell at the world yeah the joke the joke ends um, or at least the story ends and you go I also I understand if the penguin ate the box the penguin would be around the box it's true why? What? Tell me about what you like about that joke. Why the? Why end this sort of moment right here? Because when that that was something, because I, I still struggled to understand prepositions, and I was having a conversation with my producer, 
and that came out of that conversation. I'm like, because she's laughing at it. And I'm like, but still, you know, the penguin is around. You know, like I still try to, I'm still to this day trying to understand the relationship between the penguin and the fox. And I desperately want to understand who the penguin is. (laughs) (laughs) Who is this penguin? It also could be a caterpillar and an apple, I'm told. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the beginning of Douglas, you, you, as you mentioned, you brilliantly sort of do these called forwards. You tell the audience everything they can expect the show. You sort of give them your outline for the show um, to sort of run through it. For those who haven't seen the show yet, you, essentially it's observational comedy story one, which is the dog park story. Story two, which is about your bis diagnosis. Four, which is the hate baiting section. Five is the joke section. Uh, six is tearing into the haters new asshole section, which is a lecture. You do a lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, seven is like, then you're, I'm going to tell you I have autism. Then you go into anti-vaxxers. And then section nine, I'm going to let you in on my experience, a story involving a penguin, and then end with another lecture. Why have the story go right here in the show? What what does thematically mean this is time, which is you know, maybe like 50 minutes or so into the the entire special? Um, basically I'm shaking, I'm completely shaking down Nanette because <laughs> Nanette's like, oh, it is based entirely on here. Let me get to know me with some gentle stories and, um, how you expect me to be. And then surprise. Um, whereas Douglas is no surprises. Here's all the worst parts of the way I think and can behave in the world. And now I'm adorable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it's really sort of, um, and that is that is that's autism, you know. Yeah. Like I don't, I really make a good first impression. Uh, I can really be off-putting when people first meet meet me, but you know, uh, I do get there, and I ha- I am able to form relationships, and people <laughs> like me, and you know, it's fine. But I. I just know that, you know, I'm because I do it wrong. You know, as I mentioned to that end, this is the sort of the third story of the show. Sort of all the stories are um, show a sort of failure to communicate in one way or the other. The first is sort of this man who's telling you to smile as a first way of talking to you. And then there's the uncomfortable conversation about your dog's name. Uh, the second is a doctor misdiagnosing you, which is largely due to certain misogyny. This story, which is um, also framed after you reveal your autism, um, you say things like, let me bring into my thinking here. You do a lot of like, and I was thinking this, and this is how I thought about that. What were you hoping for? Well, that's how I've always had to communicate because I, I've always had to just, you know, people are like you did the you said the wrong thing here, and for a long time I'd go I just apologize and then try and understand. Whereas what I find is a really nice way of connecting with people now in my day to day life is like you know that mistake I made. Let me bring you into my thinking. Um, mm-hmm. and it's I find it's been really helpful. Um, because it's like oh I'm sorry I was. I was prioritizing a different part, but this is why. And ultimately it's because it's I'm driven by the same desire, which is to connect. Um, and it's the same as I'm talking about earlier. It's like people who, who punish you for the form of your communication 
you know, stop looking for the reason of communication. Um, and so, you know, I find by bringing people into my thinking, you know, I, I find it helpful. And I find it helpful when people share the way they think too. Like I, I really, really like that when people say, oh, these are the things I was, you know, driving at. And I'm like, that yeah. is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> an emotion you prioritized it an emotion cool <laughs> you know you know as we were talking about though it's not self-deprecating you, you're you're sort of making you're aware of sort of the um incongruity of sort of how you're reacting to this normal situation and sort of making light in it, into it and you're, you're showing the audience how to understand this person and embracing their sort of I won't say faults or failings, but sort of inability to sort of act as expected. And in that way, to be sort of sentimental, it felt like falling in love, um, especially because you described the hour as a romantic comedy. Uh, <laughs> when did you realize that? How would you describe the love? Um, but that's how I've always kind of felt when I've had a good show. You know, it's like I felt understood. And that's that's really... I think what I understand is um, love is being mm-hmm. understood. You know, I I, start, I hate falling in love. That part of it, that uncertainty of it, I hate. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love being understood, and I love understanding others, and that's for me is is what drives my work. Does a part of it come out of the experience of? doing this show, Nanette, where you thought it was going to sort of push you further away from people, it was going to push you in the boundaries, and the opposite happened, where you embraced it at such a remarkable, massive scale. Is is it partly sort of sort of you coming to terms with that sort of outpouring, that tremendous outpouring of this sort of more complicated version of you that you put out yeah. for the first time? Yeah, it was incredible. I'm still struggling to really process that. Um, you know, and that's a really important part of how I understand recovery from trauma, you know, because writing that show was, you know, one one level of catharsis, but really it was the reception of the show that did the healing for mm-hmm. me um, to, to help me escape the trauma loop uh, because I think, you know, basically trauma and shame exist in this thing where you feel unsafe in, in your community. Um, whatever you know we don't always know why and having you know that reception meant that it was like oh I you know I I feel safer in my community because people like that's Mm. not just a you thing and when you feel isolated you know and and trauma tends to isolate you um you know that's that's incredible I I, it's impossible for everyone to do that like, I, I don't think I've discovered a recipe for overcoming trauma. Yeah. Like, you can't do what I, I – I mean, I wouldn't recommend it either. It was, oof, it was a lot. But I do think there's something to be found in, you know, you know, trauma isn't – there's no solution. There's just – there's just sort of helping. Yeah. Uh, of, the, of the many things that were sort of unique to the perspective you brought to Nanette is, you know, especially around – 
interviews you did around it was sort of you, you argued against the primacy of laughter in comedy that people can kind of get laughs anywhere that an hour of laughs might be boring where you sort of have to give them more. You, you pointed about how people will laugh in audiences, even if they don't think things are funny, they might laugh just to feel safe. Mm-hmm. You know, if they feel unsafe and they just want to laugh just to fit in. So, you know, you know, and, and, and with Nanette, you sort of, you, you know, question with the idea of giving people laughter to, to offer them release. You know, this special obviously is tonally different. You did it knowing that they, most people have probably already seen Nanette. You call it fun. You say you're having fun. How has your relationship to laughter and your audience evolved after putting yourself out there to the degree you did with Nanette and, and having it be embraced as it did? You know, what is your relationship to those sort of laugh aspects? Um. I mean, la- laughter serves a purpose of catharsis. Um, and, you know, Nanette was, you know, I lanced, I lanced a boil to use really lovely language and, and metaphor. And, and so, you know, there's, you know, Douglas exists in a post cathartic world for me. But also, mm. that, but I, I don't think that changes what I said in Nanette. I think, you know, for individual performers, like if you're, you know, if you're circling around something that's actually destructive for you for the sake of a joke, I don't think that's helpful for an audience or you. Like I think every individual performer, you know, I, if anything, I just hope, you know, I've given a little bit of wriggle room for other people to tell their stories in a more constructive way. Um Joke, I can't, I like jokes. Like I think they're, really, yeah. they're a really great way to make people feel comfortable you know as, as much as they're a great way to make people feel uncomfortable when you say that it reminds me that i feel like people some people when nanette came out were like oh she hates comedy she wants to destroy comedy and you know hearing you talk about jokes it's to me when i saw it's like this is a person who loves comedy she expects so much of it that she's doing this show it's my it's and a I lifeline think- it's been a lifeline for me so you know, without comedy, I wouldn't have built up the confidence to quit comedy. You have a, a, a background in art history, and you, you did a show in Australia analyzing the idea of the fine art uh, canon. As you know, comedy, as we conceive it, is an incredibly new art form. Nanette was made clearly out of frustration with comedy and who gets opportunities and who gets lionized. In the States, her special's coming out on Netflix soon after Jerry Seinfeld's. Louis C.K., the biggest comedian, when you started working on Annette, sort of is now not on Netflix. He self-released his special. Sort of considering all of this, you know, what does it mean for you for capital C comedy to not only make room for someone like you to sort of have you be given its largest platforms? It's pretty fucked up, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. That's that's a head spin. Um <laughs> The landscape's changing. I'm still struggling to understand it. You know, when I first started, if you got a spot on TV, like that was that was the only way people could access you beyond the the live component. Um, the in, you know the internet has changed that, and also it's changed why people seek out comedy. They don't seek it out because they need funny content. That's everywhere now. If you want to like. Everyone is funny on the internet. Like, it's all there. So in a way, it's sort of freed up the art form from providing this one particular service. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, 
And I don't feel threatened by that. I feel like invigorated by it because it's sort of like, you know, it, and this, what this, this pandemic is so interesting because it's destroyed life quality in the moment. You know, you can't, and that's what it is. It's, it's being in a room full of people laughing is, is special. We don't do that. You know, like there was a time in, in, in the way society was structured when actually people every weekend would, you know, all people in a community would go to a church and sit together and, you know, think about the same things at the same time. And that doesn't happen anymore. And and, and a live comedy was one of the very few places where I, I think that, that could happen um, in such a splintered world. Um, so it's a, it's a really fascinating space at the moment. Yeah. I went off on one there. I don't think I didn't end up, I ended up in a different place we started. Sorry. No, it's okay. That was going to be my next question anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> I was going to ask you about how this has been, uh, considering that, you know, you, you've you just gone through sort of this period of ex- extreme feelings of disconnection to this extreme feelings of connection and realizing the power of it, and then now seeing what it sort of exists on this grand scale, the inability for people to have it. How has it made you think about audiences i don't know if you're thinking like oh i was going to take a break i've done these specials i'm trying to get out of the pace has it made you sort of hungry for it no i'm tired i needed really i'm really okay you know i'm i'm in a very fortunate position in that you know i was able to film this special before the world shut down and i toured and uh, you know i have a bit of coin in the bank to be reasonably comfortable um so i'm i'm i needed a break i'm exhausted i i was exhausted after Nanette and then doing this show was the only way I knew how to process what had happened with Nanette. Um, but I reached a level of exhaustion that's sort of kind of dangerous for someone with a brain like mine. So I'm sleeping a lot and recovering. Um, so my concern is not for myself. It's, you know, I'm sleeping, you know, I don't need to see people for a long time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I am concerned about, you know, jobbing comedians and how this affects people, the way that, you know, interact with, you know, what what comedy is and what it can be. I think it could be an exciting time, um, but you've got to be careful with that because, you know, something like this causes a huge amount of stress and stress is is a killer. And so, you know... Mm-hmm. It's one thing for me to say, oh, comedy, this could be a growth period. It's just like, nah, people are stressed because mm-hmm. life is stressful. This is frightening. And, you know, I I think only time would, time's going to tell on this as what, what it does. But people, you know, creativity is a way of coping with stress. So I think, yeah. you know, I think we will see, you know, different ways of, of content creation. I've... You know, for a moment there, I thought, oh, maybe I should be creating content to help people. And then I'm like, oh, well, A, I'm tired. And also, you know, this is where I've got a voice. I've got a platform. I'm okay. I don't need to flood the world with my voice, particularly because my voice, I'm for a fucking miracle. I'm comfortable for the first time in my life in a moment where a lot of people are really uncomfortable and that's really weird. Um 
but it's from those, I think the interesting voices from this are going to emerge from people who are struggling and are going to demand their creativity overcome what's mm-hmm. happening to them at the moment. So I'm excited, you know, I'm, I really hope that some really interesting, positive and constructive voices find their way through this and, and, and it could transform what comedy is. You describe genius as not a person but an event in an interview once, and I, I, it stuck with me because I think it's really interesting. It's really brilliant. Um, you know, or even in Annette, you say artists don't create the zeitgeist, they respond to it. But, you know, having lived through it, having sort of processed this all um, and having some time to sort of reflect right now, as people call that work genius, who call your work generally genius, do you have a sense about why you were the person that filled the void of that genius at the time? You know, like not saying it's you, but like why was the your talent shaped thing the thing that was the thing? Does that make sense? Yeah, look, I've, I've thought about it at, a, you know, various points and I like to, I like to contextualize things and I think, you know, it's guesswork at best, but I think part of what it, um, what it was was an authenticity of voice that could only come from someone who was like <laughs> appeared to come from nowhere. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, like, and because of the very nature of the show is like, I literally do not care about my reputation or yours. And that's why it, it worked. Um, I'm in a different place now. I can't create a work like that anymore. People look at me different. People expect different things from me. So, you know, you know, that's that's why it's a moment, not me. Mm-hmm. Like I was part of that moment and I did a lot of the heavy lifting, don't get me wrong. But, you know, history is littered with women who did brilliant work and no one took any notice of it. And are they geniuses? I'd like to think so, but we'll never know. You, you know, in various conversations, I've heard you sort of push back on ideas of, of legacy, of the idea of, of a person leaving a mark or aspiring to leaving a mark. You, you once said people shouldn't aspire to greatness. They should try to inspire. You know, you've talked about how sort of power has the ability to sort of corrupt people. This was all before you knew that you were going to be given a platform. And I think as you're aware, given power, what is it like to be in it? And how have you, while you're making your work, being like, how do you sort of I was going to say, put your money where your mouth is, but that, that does, uh, that's almost literally too literal. Um, how have you reconciled that point of view you had with this, this position you're in? Well, does it, I mean, it doesn't change my position. I think, you know, uh, for a start, like I, I make sure that I take risks, you know, and I'm not here going, mm-hmm. I, need to, I need to be in, increase my position. You know, I need to get more famous and have more, you know, like – I think I, I focus very much on my work and go, if this doesn't land, then it's I've read the room wrong. And But I'm always trying to you know, make sure, you know, I focused on Douglas as a, as a piece, not like what it would do to the world's understanding of me and my position in it. Uh, and mm-hmm. and also I think I still stand by that. I think, you know, I that and then it happened is great, you know, and, uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons. And But... If people take Nanette and then stand around it and protect it, you know, then what 
I just don't think that's the healthy bit. And I'm certainly not going to stand around Nanette and go, you can't say anything bad about it. Like, because, you know, man, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm, I like evolution, not revolution, you know? And, and by protecting a piece of work, it means you take the breath out of it. You know, my work now, if it does any good, it does it does good because people have a conversation with it. They pick it up and take it elsewhere. And I, I honestly think that's where the focus should be. Like I'm happy to, I'm happy for this little purple patch, but it's not the point. It's just so that, you know, like, you know, that's the point of, you know, you know, when I studied the history of art, it wasn't like it's like this idea led to this idea led to this idea and it wasn't just in a vacuum. It was because the world demanded different things and we learnt from like, oh, you know, this is this is not a great way to view the world, but it was important in the time. And so it's that sort of like understanding history is not the same as elevating it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I... So many people have done so many great things and just disappeared into a void, and that's just that's just how it happens. Like, and I think, you know, like I look at I look, at, you know, like Louis C.K. is not handling his current moment well. Um, so you know, for various reasons. So I've looked at it and I'm going, well, I I hope that I can handle a recession of my relevance better. So I'm, I'm kind of driven by that. It's like, yeah. yeah, I hope I'm not relevant soon. I can't speak for the world. <laughs> so that sound means it's time for a final segment. It's called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because uh, it's comedy, it's a, a laughing round. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I hope it is laughing. Um, do you have a sort of joke joke you like, a street joke, a kid's joke, a dad joke that you just like, a regular old joke you like? Um, oh man, I do. And I've just forgotten it. It just ran away from my brain. Hang on. Oh man, what's my joke? Oh, it's, um, it's not a kid's joke. It's like, um, what's the worst thing you can hear when giving Willie Nelson a blowjob? What? I'm not Willie Nelson. (laughs) I I do like that one. Is he dead? Um, he hasn't died, has he? No, he is not. Oh, thank God. No, I think he just did a tribute oh, of some sort. Or no, it's Kenny Rogers, wasn't it? Yes. All right. Yes. Um, is there a joke or uh, anything an- another comedian has done in their set that you wish you could steal, but not sort of steal, steal, but like it's another dimension where everything's exactly the same, but you have this person's joke. Or it's just sort of you saw a joke and you're like, oh, I wish I thought of that. Um, no. That's okay. <laughs> you could pass. I forgot. You're allowed to pass. Thank you. No, I just, I have a weird relationship with comedy. <laughs> um, the Ninja Turtles play a part in the in Douglas. Can you rank the Ninja Turtles by how much you like the art of their namesake? Um... Raphael is at the bottom. Dulles dishwater. Um, I like uh, Michelangelo. He's okay, but he's third. Uh, then we have um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. 
is pretty good, mm-hmm. but he didn't finish. Fuck, you know, <laughs> nothing he did is finished. It, it, it's incredible to me that people build conspiracy theories about he's trying to communicate this. Was he? We don't know. He didn't finish. <laughs> um, uh, and then, and then I love Donatello, uh, but I'm also I also like proto Renaissance more than I like. Mm-hmm. Ironic. That is for people who've seen the special. That is an ironic, a very ironic choice. Um, Taylor Swift comes up in your act a few times. You've listened to a lot of her. You said you study Taylor Swift. Do you have a favorite Taylor Swift song? No, no, okay. I don't. I, she defies my logic. She's been a like I want to understand her and her songs, and all I see is a personality disorder <laughs> that could get me in trouble. Sure. Oh, uh, oh well. Um, do you have other names? If someone's listening who's th- trying to, who's considering getting a dog soon, do you have other names for dogs you might recommend? A friend of mine just got a dog uh, and called it Sprocket, which I quite like. That's a, it's a Jim Henson reference. Sprocket. It's a good one. But no, I'm terrible at dog names. Um, <laughs> the special... Uh, starts with a lot of the things you've observed about America or mm-hmm. an, an amount. Are there other things that didn't make it in, just sort of other curiosities that you um, still have lingering? Oh, they are unfolding. You guys are not doing well. I am at a loss. I just, what have you done? <laughs> Last one. Let's. Um, do you have a a a joke or um, a story that you've told a bunch of times that you really think is really good that you think is very funny, but it has never sort of connected to the audiences the way that you think they should? Maybe to the point you've given it up, or maybe to a point where like, let me sit on that a bit and revisit another time later. For the last four of my shows that I've written, I had this bit about Adam and Eve, and it just won't. It lives for a little while in the show and then always drops out. And I I just, and it's to do with, you know, it's, <laughs> I can't, like, yeah, I read, one day, one day I'm going to make this work. What is the general area, could you say? Well, I try and reframe the story, <laughs> trying to rewrite Bible, basically. Maybe that's my problem. Um, but, yeah, basically I, I try and defend the story of Adam and Eve from from atheists, the arrogance of atheists. Got it. I'm an atheist, by the way. That's why it's probably a difficult sell. Uh, that's it. That's the end of the interview. Thank you uh, so much for doing it. I really it, it means so much that you gave me all this time. Thank you so much for your answers and your time. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can stream Douglas on Netflix. Follow Hannah on social media at Hannah Gatsby. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chong, and Camila Salazar. Godwin Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email me comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Judd Apatow. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 